I'm, I'm a middle child, I'm going to say straight up. I know, you, you've really got middle child syndrome. <laughs> In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. You're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair and I'm joined as usual by Amy Donaldson. Hi. Hi. This is a a podcast about psychology. So we are both psychologists and we like to talk about all things psychology and kind of nerd out on theory or research and stuff like that. And at the moment we're doing a series on personality disorders. The last episode we did all about antisocial personality disorder and we discussed ASPD and psychopaths and sociopaths and as part of that, we kind of got talking uh, off air about some of the things that we were interested in that we didn't really get a chance to talk about. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about two aspects of psychopathy or psychopaths. So Amy's going to talk about children and adolescents. So whether you can detect psychopathy or psychopathic traits in children and adolescents and kind of like track it through. Yep. And then I'm going to talk about quote unquote successful psychopaths. So these are not psychopaths who are like successful in <laughs> being psychopathic yeah. and, and killing people and whatnot. What we're actually we're going to talk about is psychopaths who are not incarcerated. Yeah. Okay, so classically this is like a CEO or a head of an organization or things like yeah. that. So Profitable banker. Yeah. And then what we're going to do after that is we're going to play a bit of a discussion that Amy and I had as part of last pod, but we didn't actually include it in, which is this section on treatment of antisocial personality and psychopathy. Mm. And so that's quite an interesting little discussion that we had, but didn't quite fit in to what we were talking about last time. Yeah, we got a bit overexcited and (laughs) rambled on for too long. That's it. Yeah. And we wanted to also forward announce that our next episode is a really, really great uh, episode because uh, Amy and I are not forensic psychologists. <laughs> we decided to get someone on who has got experience in that. So we interviewed Liz Daff, who is completing her forensic and clinical training in psychology. And so she, we had this really, really great conversation about working in prisons mm-hmm. and working with offenders and in particular working with people with antisocial personality disorder. And it was gripping. Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic to get that first-hand impressions of what it's what it's like and how you manage those those different facets that we've been talking about. If you've enjoyed the last episode and you enjoy this episode currently, you will definitely 100% enjoy the next episode. Absolutely, yeah. And so if you don't know what we're talking about with antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy, then you should have a good listen to the previous episode. Mm-hmm. It is We talk about in-depth, but... Just really, really quickly, a psychopath is someone who can show superficial charm, egocentricity, so that's like being very, very self-focused. They have a parasitic lifestyle, so they kind of leech off other people, essentially. They're manipulative in nature. They have a lack of remorse or lack of empathy. Really, what this means is like no guilt, and they're sort of irresponsible or irresponsible to others, things Mm -hmm. like that. So kind of like a really creepy kind of stuff. So we're going to kind of get into those kinds of things. But before we do, just a quick reminder, if you like the show, please rate, review the show through your favorite podcast app, Apple iTunes or uh, Podbean or Stitcher or whatever it is that mm-hmm. you listen to us on. Or you can listen through the website, but you can't rate and review us on that. No, 
No, you can't. <laughs> you can send us an email. Yeah. Or you can follow us on Twitter. And one of the things we do know about podcasts is that people often just share podcasts through word of mouth. So if you like the show and you find it interesting, please tell someone about it. If you don't like the show, mm, keep quiet. Just, just, just stay quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Amy, do you want to take us away? Sure. Uh, so I looked into psychopathy in children and adolescents, as most people who've listened to this podcast before and probably know that I work with kids. And so I was interested in what there was out there about whether these kind of things exist in childhood. I've certainly met children who have had aspects of this, mm-hmm. but it's not something that we traditionally label. So with a lot of the personality stuff that we've been talking about, generally there's sort of an age cutoff where... In, in psychology, we kind of go, okay, yes, we can say that someone has a personality disorder from 18 years or older. Yeah. There's sort of like an understanding that through development, all sorts of things get played out and perhaps that's not stable. And so the idea is you wait until adulthood to then diagnose something that's supposed to be an enduring issue. Mm, yeah. But obviously it doesn't just pop up on your 18th birthday. It's not like one day you don't meet the criteria. The yeah. next day you do, there's got to be some evolution yeah. over time. And it's also, it's interesting to think about that if there's been some time between when you went to school and now and mm. then you meet up with people from school, yeah, then it's interesting to see what has changed and what hasn't mm. because there are many things that are stable and many things that aren't. Yeah. And, and so you can meet someone and be with them for a couple of years and think this is who they are, but then like later on they've... They're kind of calmer or they're more outgoing than they used to be or Mm. maybe less outgoing. I don't know. It depends. Yeah, exactly. So the discussion around psychopathy in childhood and adolescence started to come about in the 90s and then it's pretty much gone backwards and forwards about whether it applies or not Mm -hmm. since then. And there's no – I guess I'll, I'll talk you through different research and things like that, but essentially there's no consensus about whether this is or isn't. Spoiler alert. I know, right? (laughs) But you'll kind of get the sense that pretty much everything I say, I'll then go, but then again, (laughs) because essentially everything, it sort of flips from side to side. So the focus has been on about whether this actually should be applied to kids and whether the things that we kind of see in childhood are transient or stable. I don't know if you've heard that often people will describe toddlers as little baby psychopaths and It's that they're entirely focused on their own needs and just bumbling around in the world. They're not psychopaths. They're just not able to kind of properly judge other people's needs and stuff yet and are focused on doing what they need to do to get food, comfort, whatever. Because by that definition, you'd almost say like child that's autistic is a psychopath because they don't comprehend. Yeah, exactly. So if you were going to apply a label based on things that you saw from early childhood it wouldn't make sense so there's been lots of concern about you know stability of that and also the negative connotations you know if you hear as a treatment provider that someone's got antisocial traits or psychopathic traits or whatever it does impact the treatment that's then provided to them it impacts people's perceptions of their outcomes things like that so it's kind of like well is this useful for kids So in terms of disorders, psychopathy isn't a disorder in the DSM. And in childhood, there's two that are kind of related, but they're not the same as psychopathy. Mm -hmm. So there's oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder. Mm -hmm. Essentially, 
oppositional or ODD is kind of around response to instructions or response to other people. So it's kind of angry when told what to do, stirs up arguments, says no, doesn't do what they're told. But it's more about the quality of the interaction than anything else. All of the definitions are around that. Whereas conduct disorder has more of the flavors of antisocial personality disorder. So it's got a I guess, a more harmful flavour to it in terms of it's about harming other people, setting fires, mm. harming, harming animals. Disrespecting the rights of others. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it specifically spells out different categories of harm. As yeah. yeah. But so as with antisocial PD and psychopathy, there's kind of conceptual differences in those. Both of those disorders are quite behavioural. Yeah. Like you do this thing and then you have this disorder. Whereas psychopathy is more about the way you think, feel, interact with other people, mm-hmm. kind of more nuanced. And they found that in kids, kids who score highly on psychopathic traits show different types of aggression and different social behaviour and things like that than kids with either of these disorders. The other thing is is that conduct disorder has pretty low predictive validity for identifying late issues. So you might have someone who is quite rebellious in their early teens or who's aggressive to other people, that doesn't predict what happens later on in, ad- oh, really? in adulthood necessarily. But it is, it does have to be a precursor for antisocial PD. How so curious. Yeah. It's not, it's not enough. Some of those issues resolve. Yeah, right. Yeah, for some. Well, I mean, there's another parallel where with post-traumatic stress disorder, that can only be diagnosed a month after a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. And if you have had a traumatic event and then let's say you get assaulted, two weeks later you're having these things, you don't actually have PTSD, you have acute stress disorder. Yeah. And if you have acute stress disorder, that does not predict PTSD. Yeah. Right, so that can actually resolve. So yeah, it's so that not, same it's kind of thing where it, it, it can be a temporary thing or it can be something that is yeah. more prolonged. Yeah. yeah. Just because you've got A now doesn't mean you get B later. Exactly. So there's been various discussions around kind of developmental issues, which I found quite interesting and kind of everything knitted together for me in terms of those kind of understanding of how children develop. So You had a great time reading. I had a great time reading this, yes, (laughs) I did. So initially the research focused on, okay, we know that psychopathy looks like this in adulthood. Let's extend it downwards and apply the same constructs down, Mm -hmm. which in a way you can kind of see where they were coming from, but also we know so much about child and adolescent development and how much things change it kind of seems like coming at it from the wrong angle from Mm. someone who works with kids. You're kind of like apples and oranges. Instead, there have been a bunch of people who have looked at different aspects of development and looked for those patterns that might indicate psychopathy later on. So there are, you know, normal parts of human development that we all have. For example, emotions are expressed from early infancy and all the way through. Mm -hmm. And so something that's impaired in psychopathy is emotional expression and and understanding. So you can kind of track that. Um, Moral development starts in kind of toddlerhood. You start to learn right from wrong by watching your parents and other adults around you. You see how they respond when you do something that's harmful to someone else or you kind of, you know, test out those boundaries. So that sort of develops throughout childhood where you start to learn that other people have rights and uh, separate entities and that there are sort of societal rules and the consequences for your behavior yeah. and so you might be able to track 
changes in that throughout development. There's also slowly a developing sense that you are separate from someone else. Small children think that everybody sees things exactly the way that they do. So if you've ever been on the phone with a kid and they've said to you, look at this, and they're trying to show you something through the phone, they assume that you can see the toy that they're holding up to the phone. They don't get that you can't see that through the phone. So they slowly learn how to develop that capacity that actually other people are separate Mm. and have other perspectives. And theory of mind. And that's actually what they think is missing in autism, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. It's that difficulty distinguishing the two. The other part that happens is that while lying is really common in childhood, it tends to diminish. So it's quite common to lie every now and then. Kids do that reasonably often. Mm -hmm. So at around four years old, three quarters of kids have been caught out in a lie recently by a parent or teacher. Mm -hmm. The parent and teacher can think of specific examples of it. But chronic lying isn't a part of regular development. So meeting a child who will lie about multiple things and hang on to that lie even when some it's challenged, that's reasonably uncommon. So it's more like 15% of kids at mm. that age. Frequent or persistent lying then does predict later on rule breaking and delinquency. So you can kind of track some of those early developmental things and see how it plays out mm. later on. What they've found is that you can measure psychopathy and narcissism in children and find clear differences between people who are high and low in each of those characteristics, but that it doesn't necessarily predict anything later on. And then temperament is also implicated in moral development as well. So so they found that anxious or fearful babies often have trouble working their way through that moral development period compared to kind of more comfortable babies. Mm. Essentially, the the questions that people have asked when they've been looking at this is, okay, if psychopathy does have origins in childhood, how do we actually piece together all of those links to make something meaningful? Because at the moment, we've kind of just got fragments. Mm. And does it actually link together? Mm -hmm. Are we actually measuring psychopathy when we're measuring that with kids? Don't know. So there's been four measures developed, and it's reasonably reliable for young people, but... Again, the predictive side of things isn't great. So it seems to have the same kind of characteristics as for adults, but it's all a bit yes, but in the literature. It's not entirely certain about whether it is measuring this same thing. It seems that the interpersonal and emotional components are the same as adults, but that the antisocial kind of characteristics are different. So There's something going on there. Things? So that the same pattern of interacting with other people, that kind of exploiting others, being dominant and even that charm and things like that, mm. that's the same. And the difficulties with experiencing emotion, expressing it, tracking other people's emotion, that sort of thing is the same. Mm-hmm. And they question whether it's about opportunity or not. They haven't got as many of the antisocial behavioural things like harming other people, doing things that are deliberately malicious mm. that but also, an adult would do. But also that fits with me is that if you've got an individual whose moral worldview, mm. you know, what the psychodynamic people would call sort of the ego ideals and those kind of core beliefs if you want to take cognitive perspective are developing mm. you might have a period of time where that those aren't that developed yeah and so you might score highly but then you might develop it later like it would depend on when exactly. you sampled maybe yeah. more that more so and yeah also you, we know that people develop at different rates cognitively physiologically emotionally that kind of stuff so yeah and we also know we used to think that adolescence ended earlier but now we know that you know, brain development, it doesn't sort of your your frontal lobe that's responsible for all those kind of 
impulse control and moral decision making and stuff doesn't really finish its main period of development until 25. Yeah. Yeah, so that point that you made really taps into the issue that there haven't been longitudinal studies looking at this. Like all of the research has been cross-sectional, so it's kind of gone, okay, let's look at a bunch of 10-year-olds, a bunch of 12-year-olds, a bunch of 25-year-olds at this particular time. It hasn't tracked people through to see how things change. So they're not really sure how stable any of it is. They're not really sure about the kind of comorbidity with other disorders like there is in adulthood. They're also not really sure about the neurodevelopmental side of things. So there's all these patterns in thinking and processing that show up in adults who have psychopathic traits. Yeah, They're not sure if they're in children or not. They've got a bit of mixed findings. So it's all, there's all these discrepancies going, maybe we could, maybe we couldn't. Well, it sounds like it's fuzzy. It just sounds like... There's like, well, there, there could be stuff there. Like, it doesn't sound like it's ruled out, but it doesn't sound no. like it's necessarily ruled in. Exactly. It's kind of like an interplay of multiple things. Yeah. So I thought I'd wrap up with a, a quote that I thought kind of captured that and kind of makes sense of it mm-hmm. from a piece of research that was quoted in this chapter that we've drawn from that's by Frick and colleagues saying that it's possible that chronically engaging in antisocial aggressive and criminal behavior over time further desensitizes individuals to the consequences of their behavior on themselves and others making their callous personality traits more stable over time so it kind of self-perpetuates that you're exposed to more of this behavior and then it seems more normal Mm -hmm. and then you kind of go oh yeah this is how things go Mm -hmm. so maybe it's about providing those opportunities to branch off away from that and that perhaps the the kids that don't go on to develop these traits have had opportunities or things that deflect them out of that path well i mean well one of the principles i always talk to my clients about is you might identify that you have a maladaptive way of thinking or acting so that might be you're perfectionistic Mm. you push yourself to work really, really hard to a high, high standard and you're very, very self-critical if you don't achieve that standard regardless of what anyone else gives you feedback about. That might seem quite maladaptive, Mm. but the thing is there are adaptive components to that. We develop these attributes because they're useful. Mm. Like I always think about in a Darwinian kind of sense, you know, as you develop, you kind of keep the things that are useful. Exactly. And discard the stuff that's not. Yeah. And so that's why psychologists always talk about, well, tell me about your childhood, Mm. given, given what you're talking about, or is there anything that's going on for you now? Does, it, does that have an echo in the past? Like, yeah. Then tell us about that because there's often a reason why you act this way because this was the way that you got through a difficult time. Exactly. Or, or you learned not to defend yourself mm. or, you learned, or you learned to be aggressive yeah. or something like this. So that would fit with that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to a child trauma conference recently and heard this guy speaking Gabor Mate, and he was talking about how he thinks that the oppositional defiant disorder should actually be scrapped. Mm. I mean, his argument was is that exactly that, that often these kids are adaptively responding to the situation that they've been in and that it, the whole diagnosis is dependent on how people respond to them. It's not something internal. So it's about other people viewing their behaviour as overly aggressive or as that they're too angry compared to what they should be, Mm. rather than looking at, okay, why are these kids angry? Why is it that they're kind of hyper-aware of what's going on around them and pushing everyone away? Why is it that they've kind of got this emotional reactivity? It's a pretty radical view. It is a really radical view. The the audience was definitely split in two. Half the people kind of nodding along and going like, yeah, this is it, and the other half going, 
no, this, no, not buying it. <laughs> Probably being burnt by some really difficult kids. Yeah, but but I feel like it's kind of holding that that balance of kind of going. It's not helpful for you now. It's not helpful for the people around you. But I can get why this was useful. Well, I mean, I think also like it gets back into like what do you call a disorder? Exactly. What's a disorder? What's the use of of a diagnosis? Yeah, because like. Someone who meets criteria through the press episode or an anxiety disorder, like who've got a cancer diagnosis, yeah, you might go, well, that's a reasonable reaction to their awful situation, but it's still disorder level mm. intensity and still got problems. Like yeah. it still can't, carries with a whole suite of... And if it helps access treatment or stuff like that, then it could be useful. Access treatment, but also like guide guide treatment yeah. normalize to them what's actually happening yeah. go, oh this is normal <laughs> like yeah so no no hang on this is, you've got depression from this thing you know that can i think i think with these one like with the yeah, the child ones in particular yeah. that it's funny like I, I feel differently about these ones than i do about anxiety depression kind of stuff when you see it in kids mm-hmm. in that often you meet kids who have been diagnosed with multiple different behavioral disorders so parents show up and they go okay so they've been diagnosed with ODD, CD, ADHD, autistic traits like they rattle off an entire list of things Mm. and actually when you break it down it's something far simpler than that but these kids at school in particular if they kind of arrive at a new school and that diagnosis is shared often they're then treated as the bad kid right yeah. from the start and they're not given any this is, and it room becomes, to and improve. It becomes, a, becomes a self-perpetuating. Yeah, and those, like, yeah. I've had, you know, seven-year-olds rattle off their diagnoses and go, this is why I'm a bad kid. I'm a bad kid because I'm oppositional. And you kind of go, <laughs> like, you're a little kid and yeah, how useful is it? So it's an interesting and complicated one. I'm always kind of like, how did we arrive at this diagnosis? How yeah. is it that you've got seven, you've got more than your age? How is that possible? Like, <laughs> what happened here? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Let, let's, 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 let's break it down. Let's, let's work back. I mean, I think that that gets to a limitation of a psychiatric diagnosis. Yes. And I think any good clinician who uses psychiatric diagnoses should understand that they're, they're limited yeah. and they do get misused yeah. and in ways inadvertently that kind of stuff. So, And I think probably there's a lack of like, whereas with medical diagnosis, people kind of go, oh yeah, I, I had asthma. I don't have that anymore. I have this thing. Perhaps I feel like there's a little bit more flexibility in kind of going, oh, I don't have those symptoms anymore. There's something about some of the psychological diagnoses collected along the way. Particularly in children, I think. Yeah, it's kind of like rather than going, oh, I've sent, got a second opinion and that person says that this original diagnosis wasn't right. It's kind of like I've now got these two things yeah. and then I go somewhere else and now I've got, Classic which is confusing. Classic conversation I have with people is, well, they're like, oh, I've got depression. You go, well, actually, you're not depressed. I've never seen you be depressed. Mm. I think you may have been depressed previously. Yeah. So you think you get What's happy. going on for you now? But what, what goes on for you is you you have a tendency towards anxiety, you mm. have generalized anxiety disorder. Or well, I know PTSD is not considered a anxiety disorder anymore. Yeah. It used to be, but we say well, you've got you know, trauma history, yeah. and those symptoms when they're bad look like, like this. Like like if you're really really anxious all the time, and then that overwhelms you for a period of time, then you get depressed because like, mm. it's a shit way of living. Yeah, and so you go like, no, you've got an anxiety problems. Like no, 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 I'm, I'm depressed. Yeah. Like no, <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, let's break it down. Let's let's, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we somehow went off on a tangent, but I feel like it's relevant. No, no, I think that thing's interesting. And I think that that's where I think you and I were interested in 
perhaps using this as a springboard to kind of just talk about some more broader concepts mm. around psychology and development and and how we understand things because yeah. we're not experts on psychopathy but i yeah. think it's a very very interesting topic so shall i go into my one yeah go for it so what i thought i'd do is i would talk about the successful psychopath so I, we're both drawing from a book called the handbook of psychopathy mm-hmm. and so my chapter is by jason hall and so stephen benning so basically, like the subtitle of this is Adaptive and Subclinical Manifestations of Psychopathy. So this idea of like successful psychopath is like really they have the characteristics of a psychopath, but they don't do this serious antisocial behavior. So basically, they're not violent and they're not in jail. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of think about it as like they're the non-criminal, they're the non-incarcerated psychopath, okay, yeah. right? Seems a bit paradoxical successful non-criminal yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah but anyway so i'm just gonna call it successful because I, I think it gives a better flavor to it mm. so that it's that kind of channeling the same thing but into something yeah. lawful yeah yeah and there's a, there's a fascination with that like you, you sort of see that as the people who say oh, i work with someone they're really really difficult mm. but they're in a position of power yeah right i mean i sometimes wonder whether people are reaching for an explanation yeah, and there's certainly a bazillion articles online about how to deal with your psychopathic boss yeah. or things like that. There's kind of a, a popular slant to this yeah. particular group yeah. as and, well. And I mean, like, and I'm, I'm not convinced that just because your boss is nasty to you means that they're a psychopath. No. It you know, could just be a whole lot of other reasons yeah. for it. But anyway, so Cleckley, who he was the guy that in the 40s who wrote this book called The Mask of Sanity. And then that kind of, they narrowed the definition of psychopathy down to its current form. Mm -hmm. In it, he talked about several people had the core features observed in criminal psychopaths, but they manifested these traits in ways which meant they didn't get arrested. Yeah. So he seemed to think that you get psychopaths at every level of society and in every job. Psychopathy didn't mean being criminal. Yeah. Whereas, like as we talked in the last pod, being antisocial, Means Essentially, probably, means right? <laughs> yeah. So, others have suggested that some of these traits might be adaptive in law, in politics, in business, and things like fearlessness mm-hmm. or like having charm. Yeah. You know, you can see how those things can be useful. Yeah, definitely. Like, Especially when you're not too concerned about the impact on other people. Yeah. Like, you pair those things together and it's kind of the perfect recipe for. Well, like, who's the guy, American Idol? There's yeah. like a British guy on the American Idol thing. Mm. And, like, he would just say nasty things all the time. Now, I'm not saying he's a psychopath, no. far from it. But you could see he was he would cut to the bone. Yeah. And, A, he was great TV. Mm. But he was successful. Yeah. Or what was portrayed as successful. I don't mm. actually know where he was. So, I think this group's interesting for a number of reasons. Because they engage in things that are not illegal. But they do engage in things that often involve, like, significant breaches of... Social norms, social trust, and they seem to have like a large impact on people. Yeah. Right. So there's. So it's not like they don't have a negative impact on others. No, it's just they don't have like a like a a violent or overtly criminal. Yeah. And so they talk about like, well, actually, some of these people do sort of trend into criminal acts, Mm -hmm. but really they kind of like achieve personal professional success 
expensive everyone else family friends co-workers yeah right they leave broken relationships behind yeah you know this is the dead bodies on the path to their success kind of yeah. scenario right yeah so i was thinking about the classic one in recent popular culture like frank underwood from mm. house of cards yeah although i'm, I'm never quite sure whether he's narcissistic or antisocial i mean he's <clears throat> cluster b <laughs> <laughs> cluster b tick yeah so cluster B is the antisocial, anti-social borderline, narcissistic and histrionic, histrionic yeah. is, is the cluster. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about. So what's interesting is that research is difficult, right? Hard to recruit subjects that aren't in prison. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So and a lot of the research is done on male incarcerated offenders. Captive audience. Captive audience. No pun intended. <laughs> Good one. And I really didn't just mean. keep on going. <laughs> so they, but so it's, it's difficult to then recruit and kind of find these people. And there's some interesting kinds of questions like, well, are these people subclinical versions of incarcerated psychopaths? Mm-hmm. Are they expressing tendencies in adaptive ways because of other aspects of buffering, like sort of intelligence or socialization or whatever? And which bits of psychopathy are pathological? Because right. I'm kind of, I guess, mentally, as you're talking about that, running through Hare's psychopathy checklist, and there's only sort of two or three items. You're always running through that when you're talking to me. I, uh, it just gets me a little scared. <laughs> Look, I just need to make sure. <laughs> yeah. The point is, um, there's only two or three items on there that directly involve criminal acts. Everything else is that kind of, all of those other traits, the interpersonal, the emotional, et cetera. So you could actually meet criteria on that checklist mm. for psychopathy without having any criminal acts, technically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to kind of give some examples, Cleckley gave some examples of like physicians, businessmen, aristocrats, right? One of these people talks about like a man who connived, plagiarized, and cheated his way through several prestigious educational institutions. He was a successful ladies' man and seemed to be supported by the women he seduced. Mm-hmm. This is what we're trying to get at here. There was an, another author, Babic, who talked about Dave, who was a man who used flattery, manipulation, and backstabbing tactics to advance through company ranks mm-hmm. after infiltrating the corporate world. Yeah. Right? So corporate examples, there was the leaders of uh, this company called Enron in the United mm-hmm. States, Kenneth Lay and Andrew Fastow, who were indicted as parts of a extremely, extremely large bankruptcy scandal. There's a great doco yeah. on that and they just kind of did it without any regard mm. pop culture gordon gecko from the movie 1980s movie wall street mm, by oliver yeah. stone which is a really really great movie yeah really really solid movie so but gordon gecko is this cynical callous really really charismatic wall street stockbroker yeah and he gives this great speech where he talks about greed is good mm. right and so this personal profit at the expense of anything else yeah so more recently alan shaw who's james spader's character in boston legal so mm-hmm. he's this charming glib amoral individual he yeah. like cons people to yeah. get into power right oh um suits I'm thinking not about suits. the it's again you triggered it from the lawyer side of things there, there are a couple of the lead characters that probably would fit that. They're kind of like a top-tier law firm. Mm. And the main character is incredibly charming and successful and quite quite appealing, but yeah. ruthless. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I've heard about it in the medical community. Yeah, you seem to often hear about it in terms of sort of law, medicine, business. Yeah, hierarchical, yeah. perhaps, I wonder. And, and organisations that probably 
appreciate or there's kind of a expectation of of confidence or kind of appearing to fit the the look of what a successful person does yeah, so it's more dominant. defined yeah yeah and then also you know in the psychopath test which is a book mm. they so in the psychopath test but written by ronson he talks about this ceo who gets hired and just like without any kind of care in the world, would just close down mm. factories, putting heaps and heaps of people out of work, yeah. and the stock market would reward it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just that focus on yeah. this is what I want. So this idea of like subclinical psychopathic traits related to things like academic manifestations, mm-hmm. some of the research says use of illicit substances, legal infractions that are minor, mm. or it can be major. So instead of, say, violent or aggressive behaviour. Yeah. Right, so it's just kind of toned down. So in pod five, I think it was pod five, we talked about the dark triad, mm. which is psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. Mm. And so the thinking is that subclinical psychopathy is linked to these two other constructs. So narcissism is this persistent pattern of self-aggrandizement and egocentricity. Mm-hmm. And so in the extreme form, that's narcissistic personality disorder, yeah. which is pod 27. And Machiavellianism, which is not something that many people, a couple of people have asked me what that is mm. when we talk about it. So that's a definition that is like manipulation and instrumental use of others. Yeah. Right. And that's measured, measured by the MAC4. So mm. that's M A C H and then I V for the MAC4 inventory. You can do that online. Yeah. <laughs> which is really kind of fun. <laughs> so there's like overlap between narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. Yeah. And also apparently. I had feedback from a researcher and he said that it's actually there's the dark tetrad now. So, with, yeah. so now with sadism. Yeah. <laughs> the way I think about it. Yeah. So. <laughs> Rebranded. <laughs> Rebranded. Now it's yeah, we should do another pod that's then the dark tetrad. Yeah, I think yeah. we should do that. So other things, they talk about tactical impression management. Mm. So there's like self-serving behaviours intended to curry favour with others. Yeah. And achieve social success. So you can see that that's adaptive. Mm. So on the devious end, that's ingratiation, intimidation, self-promotion. Yeah. <laughs> Frank Underwood. Yeah. Right. And so the suggestion that you might be, if you're one of these people, you might be drawn to a company that's in flux mm. or having rapid or unstable transition. Yeah. So you can take advantage of organizational chaos. Yeah. In order to profit. At the so sort of position of yourself in a position. way that that it's going to work out well for you. Yeah. 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 And push other people, push others down yeah. if, need, if need be. Because they've got this skill of being able to size up co-workers, mm. they can be very effective and they can lie and get into power. Yeah. So dark triad traits don't really seem to be that desirable to possess. And I think we kind of covered that in pod five where, oh, you know, if you've got these traits, narcissism, psychopathy and Machiavellianism, you know, there's this idea that you would do well, but actually... It's kind of socially undesirable. But the research sort of doesn't necessarily bear that out mm. all the time but there are other aspects so like this this idea of being fearless and interpersonally dominant seems to go together and that seems to be positively related in research to outcomes like cognitively or psychosocially essentially if you're fearless that can help you be daring leader mm. or heroic if you've been socialized correctly yeah like if you kind of got that thing so you know it could be a good survival strategy and this idea that maybe Psychopathy traits are only pathological amongst the socially disadvantaged, mm. if that kind of makes sense. Actually, I I missed it in the childhood thing, but one of the things that predicted whether whether you continued to have some of those psychopathic traits 
throughout childhood into adolescence and adulthood was around socioeconomic status and kind of social advantage. So people who are more socially disadvantaged didn't have as many of those opportunities to work through it. Mm-hmm. And the same with quality of parenting. <coughs> so perhaps if you didn't have those other impacts, other yeah. influences, then well, that, that, you that, couldn't shape it into... That totally dovetails into yeah. this idea about these factors that compensate. Mm. There's the core underlying trait and then if you have other factors that compensate, then yeah. maybe that's sort why... buffers it. That's why you become a successful psychopath rather yeah. than an incarcerated one, yeah. essentially. So... There are some self-report studies in university samples, primary psychopathy is related to high competitive achievement, Mm -hmm. fearless and social dominant aspects associated with educational attainment and resilience against internalizing disorders, which basically means depression or anxiety. Which also fits with the areas that you then see it in society. You know, you have to be pretty driven to be able to get to the top in law, for example, or something Mm. like that, to be able to get through that education and then... Keep going, kind of makes sense. Yeah, you can't be disabled with neuroses. No. And so twin data talks about there's a negative correlation with genetic risk for internalizing disorders, mm-hmm. which is what we're talking about. So really, in summary, so more competitive, not fearful, more daring, less likely to suffer from depression, anxiety and doubt. So you can sort of see how that's th- yeah. that constellation, if you've got that, then you might become mm. successful, might be adaptive yeah. to have psychopathic traits. Or be a psychopath. Hmm. So what I wanted to talk about was just some conceptual perspectives on this, mm-hmm. right? So we were, we were about to, we were leading into that anyways. Three conceptual perspectives, right? So stick with me here. Number one, successful psychopathy as a subclinical manifestation of the disorder. So basically the idea that they're a less extreme psychopath. Mm-hmm. So Cleckley said that the incomplete manifestations of the disorder, reduced severity, so less criminal. There's a theory that people who are aberrant self-promoters who are subclinical psychopaths and they commit crimes rarely and possess narcissistic personalities. So the difference between a psychopath and an aberrant self-promoter is one of degree, not of kind. Yeah. Right, if that yeah, makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. S- successful psychopaths is moderate expression of the disorder. So they sh- share the same etiology and severity of incarcerated psychopaths. So basically the same genotype. But yeah. what we're talking about is that there's other factors that compensate and moderate this result. Mm-hmm. So result in a different phenotype, yeah. if you follow me. So this the, the things that they kind of talk about is like, well, it could be IQ, it could be talent, it could be educational opportunity, it could be socialization, it could be socioeconomic. Mm. Essentially, they avoid the pitfalls of being antisocial. Mm. Yeah. And they express it in a sort of a socially sanctioned kind of way, sport, music, politics. And there was a theory by Lincoln where there's a deficit in fearlessness reactivity. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of exceptional parenting, the fearless child becomes antisocial, whereas those with proper socialization or other facets would become heroes or leaders, mm. essentially. Yeah. So, and then the third perspective is that successful psychopaths is a dual process perspective. Mm-hmm. So, which is by Patrick. So that there's a interpersonal affective aspect that has a separate cause or development to an antisocial behavior aspect. Okay. Yep. Right. So you can be high on this interpersonal affective aspect. Mm-hmm. So you have these, have the psychopathic traits that you see in terms of interpersonal relationships yeah. but then you could not be higher on the sort of more antisocial part and then 
therefore you could still function in society, mm. if that makes sense. What's sort of interesting is that these kind of have, they're not really mutually exclusive and yeah. the research seems to support elements of it and seems to affect the way in which you do research yeah. and how you conceptualize it more than necessarily definitely one or it's definitely the other. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So, I mean, just to give you an understanding of what I'm talking about, is that compensatory process perspective basically looks at protective factors. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, if you're looking at research, you would start to be looking at protective factors. If you've got some of the antisocial parts, yeah. then what stops them from becoming antisocial? Yeah. Whereas the dual process perspective talks about when is it adaptive, which parts of psychopathy is adaptive, yeah, and that kind of stuff. So it's kind of interesting you run into these problems of doing research in this area because you you can do this like high risk strategy. High risk is in you you sample from a place where there should be high rates of psychopathy. Mm-hmm. So one of the earliest studies was in 1977 by uh, Widom and they got newspaper ads advertising for adventurous individuals leading carefree and excited impulsive lives <laughs> who, would, who would do almost anything on a dare. Right? <laughs> Perfect. A, a second one was looking for charming, aggressive, carefree people who are impulsive, who are impulsively irresponsible but are good at handling people and look out for number one. <laughs> and there's a few other ways where they did it, where yeah. they get people from employment centres mm. and things like that. So... And able to demonstrate that you could get non-incarcerated psychopaths. But what they found in these groups was that they would still have a higher than general population level of criminal acts. Okay, But they yeah. might not be incarcerated. Okay, right? yeah. So, there's this kind of distinction between a successful, quote-unquote successful psychopath sample that has criminals in it yeah. and non-criminals. Mm-hmm. and sort of interpreting the results becomes fuzzy, not yeah. unlike what you're talking about. In, yeah. And there's sort of questions around like it starts to become difficult to kind of figure out what to do. So they then over time have developed self-report mm-hmm. measures of psychopathic traits, which yeah. we've kind of talked about. And that's then enabled them to do a whole lot of research, which which kind of mirrors they found a lot of the same kind of findings in personality, emotional responding and aggression and response modulation mm-hmm. to incarcerated okay, psychopaths. Yeah. And so that would suggest there's an etiological similarity. Yeah, so it's then, just the expression that's... Yeah. yeah, and then there's like research that has identified these compensatory things. More advantaged socioeconomic backgrounds seems to be key yeah. in distinguishing and they found like the non-convicted groups demonstrate high levels of executive function mm-hmm. and elevated physiological reacti- reactivity to social stress okay so one of the things that we know with psychopaths is that they they have less reactivity yeah. to social stress yeah less so spe- maybe there's more of that i wonder if that reflects more of the impression management kind of stuff the more of that awareness of other people's yep. perception or something. Yeah, but then they think that maybe there's like a they're not as numb to it yeah. initially or something like that. Yeah. I'm probably getting the terminology a little bit incorrect there. But one sort of theory amongst many there was that the non-convicted groups might be pushed towards psychopathy through environmental circumstances rather than say a stronger well like a biological temperament factor, hmm. if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. 
sort of repeating myself here, higher socioeconomic status, more intact executive functioning and intact autonomic hyperactivity serve to buffer against criminal conviction and incarceration, mm. but not necessarily antisocial behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're able to restrain yourself more, yeah. then you're able to keep yourself out of jail. Yeah. Right. For some people there, they might still get themselves in trouble, but they're able to avoid lengthy incarceration. Mm. Yeah, you know that kind of thing. I even wonder about stuff like white collar crime or stuff like that that perhaps goes unnoticed rather than a violent offence or something. Yeah, I mean, there's a current currently in the United States there's a trial of Donald Trump's election campaign chairman. Yeah, so someone very very senior. Yeah, and he's been tried on numerous counts of not paying his taxes mm. and defrauding people. Well, not defrauding is probably not the quite right term, but financial crimes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a lack of caring about that. Mm. So, and then there's some evidence with the dual perspective that separate etiologies of different parts of psychopathy, and Mm -hmm. that might be why we see it. Yeah. But they do also note that some of that research comes from the use of this one particular questionnaire that separates out the fearless dominance aspects positively associated with psychosocial resilience, socioeconomic status, and academic achievement. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's this like more adaptive process. Whereas the other feature I was talking about is this impulsive antisociality. So this idea that if you've got a high high level of fearless dominance, yeah, but not high levels of impulsive antisociality, yeah, then you'll be the quintessential high functioning psychopath. Yeah. Right. Whereas if you're high in both, yeah. then more likely to be imprisoned. That's that's right. So that's kind of about where I wanted to end. Interesting. Like it kind of there is a group there and these trays do exist in people. I think I was hoping out of the research to have some like really, really solid examples, but Mm. I guess wouldn't want to necessarily write that. Like solid examples of people who are I feel like that they'd be really hard to find as well. Yeah, I guess that's true, isn't it? Whether that kind of those narcissistic qualities would mean that they wouldn't even be willing to do a survey or something, you yeah. know, be observational rather than <laughs> anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I, and, and I saw this interview with author Ronson who mm. wrote The Psychopath Test and he went and interviewed the CEO and he, I think he was standing in his kitchen or something yeah. and, or in, in the house and there's this, you know, the guy's like standing underneath a picture of him painted of himself. <laughs> lots of yep, gold, yep. gold, gold around. I'm probably embellishing the story, but no, and, it's got that feel to it. And, I remember. And, and he was like, "Oh yes, yeah, so why do you want to interview me?" This also had to sort of fess up. Was like, "Well, I think you might be a psychopath." <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's yep. a bit awkward. <laughs> Thanks. Perfect. So, um, so yeah, so be, yeah. Anything else? Uh, no, I think that's it. Okay. So what we're going to do now is we're just going to cut to. Amy and I's discussion about treatment of antisocial personality disorder and mm-hmm. psychopathy and that conversation is quite interesting so stick with it. So we're going to wrap up the chat around antisocial with a bit of a discussion about therapy. It's probably, I think, both what we're going to talk about, you know, often only happens in 
other substance or in prisons. Yeah. I'm going to speak briefly about a couple of centres in the UK that have tried new and different ways of approaching things. And then I'm probably going to talk about what actually happens on an everyday level. Yeah. 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 So there's been a couple of approaches in the UK. And the first one was Grendon Prison, which has been going since the 60s. And essentially they've tried to create therapeutic communities. So there's six different therapeutic communities within this one centre and each one functions in a pretty similar way. It's staffed by doctors, psychologists, psychiatric nurses and prison officers. This one's different from the next one I'll talk about in that it's voluntary. So people generally have acknowledged that there's something going on for them that they need help with, which generally places them more towards the milder end of what we've been talking about. There's kind of, you know, something of going, yeah, this isn't working for me. But they're still at what the UK calls level B in their prison system. So it goes from A downwards. Mm-hmm. A is people who need to be in maximum security and are at great risk of you know, trying to escape and yeah, assaulting right. other people. B is they're still maximum security, but they haven't tried to escape for more than six months. So yeah. <laughs> it's a spectrum. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's an important distinction. It is, yeah. So they volunteer for this treatment. <laughs> you so, like that, don't you? so great. <laughs> It lasts for at least 18 months. Most people are on long-term sentences uh, and it includes daily community meetings, community activities to develop general skills, democratic decision-making, which I found really interesting, this idea of all these people who really don't tend to care about other people's perspectives trying to find some kind of democracy around what's going to happen in their community. Active challenging of antisocial behaviour by both other prisoners and staff. Yeah, right. So if they see something, challenge it. Group therapy, kind of they're trying to create an environment where everyone's accountable to the community. So that started off first and then there was kind of this... Like, um, so I'd be like, if there was a group of like scary dudes, yeah. I'd be totally like, you know what? You guys say this stuff, I'll, I'll do it. That's yeah. good. I'm good yeah. with yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that started first and then they started to consider about what to do about the people who had either finished their sentence and were definitely not okay to be released out into the community or people who had life sentences, which in the UK actually means life, whereas here it's 25, yeah. And what to do with those ones who were particularly unwell in terms of personality disorders and psychopathy. So they've set up these new wards and I found the first report of how things were going, the kind of, you know, reporting on this new thing. It's now been expanded to a few other places, but it's quite labor intensive and people are there involuntarily and they're there for a really long time. Mm. And so they're called dangerous severe personality disorder wards. And they're within prisons. They're for people who are in that kind of, they tend to be in the category A kind of region. So often who are too dangerous to be released, like they'll openly say, yes, I I plan to continue doing what got me in here. Or they're under life sentences. So over 75% of them are in for life it's sentences. It's fascinating, isn't it? It is. About. Yeah. So for... Over 90% of the people who are in these wards, their first offence was homicide, some sort of violence or a sexual offence. The median age of their first offence was 15. Yeah. And they'd had a median number of convictions was 12. And in their current kind of custodial period, they'd spent an average of 13 years 
before being considered for entrance wow. into this ward. So they're people who have, you know, pretty persistently. So this is a, this is like a really really severe end. It's a really severe end. Today. They get a lot of a lot of applications, and I think they want to have far more people in these wards, but they don't have the capacity for them. Yeah. But I read somewhere it was sort of we're taking the two thousand most dangerous people in the UK. So in the original trial, eighty percent scored over thirty on the hair psychopathy what checklist. So you have to score, I think it's 25 to meet the moderate criteria. But essentially, I think there's 32 items. So essentially, you're endorsing everything if you score over 30. They have to have that or they have to have two or more personality disorders, comorbid, or they have to have a moderate score, so over 25 on the psychopathy checklist and a PD. And 80% of them are assessed as more likely than not to commit an offence that would cause serious physical or psychological harm upon release. Mm. So, yeah, just taken as a given that, yes, they will I want to know who works there. It's fascinating. Well, so staffing-wise, it's, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, they have social workers, OTs. It's, It's mostly health. And then prison officers. Each site sets their own treatment protocols. And so... What they're aiming for in terms of treatment per week, but they kind of said it doesn't tend to happen yeah. entirely. But they have a 30 minutes of assessment every week, three hours of formal treatment, an hour and a half of mixed treatment, that, that community dynamic kind of thing, uh, nine hours of structured activity, 14 and a half of recreation, and then for 30 hours a week they're in lockdown. So they're in their own room, solitary confinement. Yeah. Yeah. What they found is that there's been a significant reduction in their violence risk scale score each year. They only assess that once a year and it was a pretty like I'd probably say just significant kind of a drop each year. So there's a difference between statistically significant, significant and, and clinically significant. Yeah. So you can Everyone, drop No one's left. No one's left. Yeah. Unless they died. Yeah, right. Yeah. Unsure of the long term effect. But This kind of thing isn't entirely unusual. So there's been a movement towards therapeutic communities. So Mm. There's a TV show called Oz, Mm. which is by HBO. I think it was the forerunner of the hour-long HBO. Yeah. Really, really intense, really, really interesting plot line, really, really well acted. Mm. If you've not seen that show and you can handle... Uh, violence, yeah. then that is, is uh, I it's could not high that, more highly recommend that show. Yeah. It's, it's also very creepy. Yeah. But yeah, but they, they took, they, they basically set up a community in a prison mm. as a trial. Yeah. Um, yeah. And essentially there's a more and more of that movement of that kind of, you know, how can you expect people to, if you're aiming for them to go back out into society, yeah. how can you move from that to the other? So our very good friend of the podcast, Liz, mentioned a couple of them to me when I contacted her today going, can you give me some names or some point me in the right direction? And there's unsurprisingly, as in just about all mental health care, the Nordic countries have got this covered and they're trying out different options of different levels of security. And then there's also some therapeutic communities for low security or moderate in New Zealand as well, where they're trying it out. But I had a look at some of their websites and it was interesting. A lot of it was about just simple things like natural light and room to move and things like that, that a lot of prisons don't have. Mm. And looking at the impact of what those things have on your general functioning. Mm. If you don't know the time of day and you don't get that sunlight, what happens? 
So it's interesting. Mm. Yeah. So, but essentially, like, I didn't have any kind of jumping in the air, well, who we found a cure kind of No, it certainly <laughs> it seems incredibly labour intensive. And I, I guess, mm. you know, the, the thought is, particularly as a taxpayer, you'd be like, well, well, yeah, there's. Like you think basically, like, what's the point? I like, found a lot of articles that were kind of written by kind of, you know, tabloid papers or things like that saying, you know, prisoners are more comfortable than people out in the community or things like that kind of going what's the point in spending money on this like i mean i think it, i think it's i think it's interesting as a as a clinician yeah. as to what you can do yeah. and like if you do all this stuff then yes maybe you can get some reduction mm. but like what's the payoff yeah. particularly when like say like if you work in a hospital like i do mm. and you know you have more referrals than you have time yeah yeah it's an interesting kind of ethical you know, versus like, say, you know, yeah. piling resources into a group that won't actually ever get better. Mm. So, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, like, and I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I'm just sort of posing the question for people yeah. to think about. So, yeah, it's interesting. So, so what about, you know, in the community? So, what in general, are, so you've kind of talked about the, the pointy of mm. pointy ends. So, what I thought I'd talk about is the everyday clinician mm-hmm. or perhaps the clinician that works in drug and alcohol yeah. or forensic settings or something like that. So, best word, difficult. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> That's it. So, really, they are unlikely to present to therapy. Mm-hmm. So, well. you, usually there's some kind of threat that's brought them to therapy, mm-hmm. usually court ordered or it might be school ordered in children yep. and adolescents or it could be like work. Mm-hmm. Or it could be marriage. Like, I'm going to divorce you if you don't come. Yeah. Right? So... So, it's not a... tends not to be a voluntary nope. thing. No, nope, yeah. that's it. So, because there's no empathy, there's no insight, and they're impulsive, ordinary mm-hmm. therapy is, quite highly ineffective. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? Psychodynamic is basically ruled out because that's insight-based. Mm. Really, the focus is containment. Yep. Modest goals. Okay. Right? And there is some thought that if someone is older then gains are more likely. Okay. So they, they, they've burnt out a little bit. Mm. Uh, either the physical decline has burnt that sensation mm-hmm. seeking out maybe mm. or, or, you know, maybe the, like the negative experiences have piled on. Yeah. What I thought was really, really interesting. So the first line of one of the, one of the paragraphs was, mm. for antisocials, therapy is just another game, <laughs> end quote. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that kind of gets at, the challenge of if you are a psychologist mm. working with this group. Managing that relationship. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of like, so the trap is an antisocial knows they must develop. They must express guilt, they <laughs> contrition, desire for change, but they know not to do that too quickly because yep. it won't seem real. Yeah. Right? So, so it's a performance. Yeah. Quote, the antisocial then returns to the flock, the therapist being the proud shepherd. Next line. <laughs> Anyone working with antisocials will be duped many times over. Beginning therapists and those with a desire to cure their subjects are especially vulnerable. Mm. So, I mean, you can sort of see that. Like, that they play the game. Yeah. Even like a child, like mm. or an adolescent at a school or something like that. And so, they very, very quickly learn to manipulate staff mm-hmm. or something like that. And so, you can pick that up through a thorough history yep. of talking to the patient and informants, so like other people around them, mm. particularly when you kind of get this divergence, yeah, like one like group of people change from one to the other, yeah. Or and so, like, so like perhaps people, yeah, yeah, so like people who are in power have yeah. this glowing view, and then the people around them are terrified. Mm. Countertransference. Mm. So countertransference is the way the therapist feels towards the client. Mm-hmm. Transference is the way the client feels towards the therapist. Lots of it. Mm. 
you, know, you as a therapist might be angry, suspicious, or resentful, mm-hmm. and that will that will impact on therapy yeah. success. And you might actually miss, as a clinician, you might actually miss the few chances for developing a bond, mm. for change, and repeats your cycle of the antisocial being rejected. Yeah, again. What I thought was really interesting is like if it's a male therapist, male client, both can challenge each other for dominance mm-hmm. and the patient may sadistically sabotage therapy. Interesting. Right? The therapist may uh, sadistically allow therapy to be sabotaged mm. because victory yeah. or progress yeah. is a loss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that thought was really interesting. Really interesting. What I, what other thing was so a lot of therapists like you would have if you've listened to this pod before. I mean, I talk about how like psychologists are frequently compulsive individuals. Mm. We're kind of pedantic, yeah. You know, which is kind of interesting. Like we like working with people, but we're kind of quite pedantic about very very small things. Yeah, there's lots of reasons for that. <laughs> but so like so if your therapist is compulsive, they're rigid to social norms, mm. and antisocial PD is indifferent. Yeah. At best, yeah. to social norms, yeah. so they're going to hate each other. Yeah, essentially, it's sort of set up to fail right from it's, the start. Yeah, so so I mean, I think so. They had like a long laundry list of suggestions. Mm. Basically, you've got to acknowledge how open therapy is to manipulation, mm-hmm. straight up, and I, and this idea that probably that would actually respect you for that. Yeah, things you should try and have is you should be self assured as a therapist, reliable but not infallibly mm-hmm. objective. Strong personal limits, be relaxed but non-defensive yeah. and have humour. Mm-hmm. So they talk about cognitive and interpersonal. Interpersonal is really interesting slash slightly scary. <laughs> uh, so it's like I do like – so it makes sense theoretically. Like you develop a sense of nurturing attachment so you've got to bond with this person. Mm. That fits you – know, so you've got a, you know, an alliance beyond – the the guy mm. trying to con you, yeah, and address the hostility for being therapy, mm. right? And it's like, yeah, you know, you could actually just got to name that. Basically, like you here, mate. Yeah, let's just use our time yeah. constructively. Yeah. Like, what can I do for you? Yeah, right. It's like, yeah, look, I know you don't want to be here. What can I do for you? You are. You so are. Yeah. Right. You have to be here, and I have no personal investment in the outcome. Mm. So, what do you want to do? Mm. Right. That kind of. That kind of. You can sort of see how that could kind of diffuse it. Sort of plays into that control thing. Like, yeah. yeah. But then also kind of like, I'm not trying to beat you, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's not a game. Yeah. One of the problems is they can trigger, these guys will trigger feelings of moral disgust. Mm. That's going to derail therapy. Yeah. Talks about treatment from a benevolent power perspective. So rewards and punishments are known ahead of time. Punishment is given reluctantly but consistently. Mm-hmm. Modeling attachment that you care but that you can't be exploited. Yeah. Although, I mean, I can't think of any other therapy things where you would punish someone. No. I don't, I don't know how you would punish someone typically no. as a therapist. But, but I mean, I guess there's a, there would be rules in the centre that you work with and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I wonder if the rules themselves form that kind of punitive. Yeah, I mean, this is I'm not a forensic site. Yeah, so interesting. For adolescents and kids... They talk about, say, using sport figures mm-hmm. to model warm, helpful attitudes. So I guess you'd be thinking of a sports figure as someone who's powerful, yeah, uh, looked up to. Yeah. Okay, so this is creepy. <laughs> so is this still kids and adolescents? No, this is like well, no, this is like treatment for an antisocial is the idea of putting the antisocial in a nurturing position mm-hmm. 
with the idea that dependency can draw out nurturance from the antisocial. Okay. So you would perhaps give them a pet to care for or wait for it. Get them to teach your children a skill or a sport. <laughs> so I can I can see the theory behind that. They don't underline it, but you can feel the desire in the author to underline the point that like that would be heavily supervised. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see the theory behind mm. that, which is... Can we start with a plant? It's <laughs> <laughs> a plant. Yeah. I know. I, I'd say of, I'd like, like, <laughs> a sea monkey? I have this idea of like a Tamagotchi? Kit, a kitten. <laughs> Just, you know, something that's not going to feel pain. That's it. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Mm. Cognitive approach. So let's get away from that <laughs> creepy bit. Cognitive approach. So this is the last pe- thing when we're about to have a break. It's not focused on induction of shame or anxiety, mm. which, which you might kind of do in interpersonal therapy or like a cognitive yeah. therapy. You would activate shame, mm. activate anxiety and deal with it. That's not going to work. So the idea would be about developing more abstract levels of moral reasoning. Mm-hmm. And I guess sort of teaching this thing of, you know, just because you're having thoughts and feelings that your needs must be met immediately, not to trust that. Yeah. And that not to trust this feeling of like, oh, I'm right and others' feelings are irrelevant. Mm. Trying to teach them that their actions do affect others. Yeah. And teaching them that if their actions have an impact on others, then actually that impacts on them. Yeah. Right? So trying to move them to this place of enlightened self-interest mm. so still still self-interested but it's yeah. well if i if i do this it'll get in the way of my self-interest yeah, rather so, than yeah i should do this to be good to other people yeah and i think i've talked about it before in the personality series where you use the personality pathology to your advantage yeah. which is yeah. like okay you're self-interested yeah so how can we help your self-interest yeah if you understand that kind of thing mm-hmm. so and also like you would model as a therapist delaying gratification so yeah. by basically it's like, okay, you've got this option ahead of you. Let's nut out the pros and cons, mm-hmm. the priorities. Yeah. Let's like work through that. Mm. Right. So that Makes was, sense. So that was, that's all I had on therapy. Mm. I know that was a lot, but it's, yeah. How creepy is that? It's, yeah. It, I mean, it, it confirms that I definitely wasn't destined to go into forensic. Yeah. I just, yeah. Like I find it really interesting in an abstract way, but also that even just hearing about some of those things has a gut reaction that I'm kind of like, no, this isn't the right avenue for me. Yeah. It's I mean, just, I think, yeah. I think, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think if you are a therapist who's going into that, no, mm. okay, look, I'm going to be working be like. six months or 12 months in this field mm. and this is what I've got to expect. I think you would be different. Yeah. But then the couple of times I've come across sort of antisocial trait people you can be a bit surprised by Mm. it and then so like you're not on your guard as much and so it gets activated extremely quickly yeah and then it becomes very complicated sort of wondering what's happened yeah Yeah. or kind of just like you don't care or or whatever like so it's it's quite interesting Mm. yeah interesting so look thanks for sticking with us we're going to take a break yeah and we're going to come back with something much more lighthearted. yeah yeah I think so you're listening to (laughs) Shrink Spot see you soon But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations. 
thank you for listening. Uh, this is the part of the show where we ask you to say nice things about us on public forums. So ideally on things like rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, sending us lovely things on Twitter, sending us emails, visiting our website, mm. all of those good stuff. Yeah, we had some like listener feedback this week. And so if you actually got any questions about anything that we've talked about or you want us to clarify something, just shoot us a message and uh, we will try and help you out. Absolutely. And everything is Two Shrinks Pod, just across the board. Across the board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just type Two Shrinks so, Pod in and you'll find us in every nook and cranny of the internet. Well, actually, we're not in every nook and cranny. <laughs> You sure? Because I've been doing some um, work on the side. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that was one actually thing is Amy has been doing, uh, has revamped our website. So yes. um, you can have a look at our website. There's obviously the links to every episode. But then also, if you want to look at a more, an easier way to mm. see what topics we've got, Amy's made a topics page. Yeah. And there's also like a list of all the things we came across. Yeah. Because some people say that they, they like the pod, but they really like the last segment. <laughs> yeah. And, and we also had trouble keeping track of things. So that's, I'm almost finished that page, but I'm updating it as I go. And there's definitely some themes. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter, Cats and Star Wars are featuring highly. Top two are yours, by the way. <laughs> anyway. So thank you for listening. Shall we get back to it? Let's get back to it. So this is our segment called Things We Came Across, or we often abbreviate it as to TWCA. If you mm. ever see that and you go like, what? That's what, that's it's things, what it means. Things We Came Across. Yeah. So this is where we talk about things that we've come across. Whenever you're doing a literature search, you frequently find something that's just far more interesting mm. than whatever it is you're working on. Yeah. And or been, entirely bizarre and you're not sure how it ended up on your list because the search terms are oh none of what God, you put in. Oh my God, yeah. Like, he's like, like, what? Yeah. Like, why is knitting needle injuries coming up on my, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the things that came up, I was having a conversation with someone and they disclosed that they had, let me back up a sec. Do you ever go to a Subway, the fast food sandwich place? I haven't for an exceptionally long period of time. Yeah. So I was having a conversation with someone and they had done that and then they sort of disclosed that they do that on a semi-regular basis. Right. And they have a particular order. Mm. And so I was like able to guess their order. And they, <laughs> of course, they guessed mine, which would have been meatballs. I don't, I don't, rec- I can't even recall the last time I went. Anyway, so, but I was tr- as in, in the process of trying to guess my colleague's order. I yeah. Googled the Subway website. Right. And so there's a list of by country a number of Subway stores. Okay. And so it's just fascinating. It's like Aruba, there's seven in Aruba. In a in Aruba. What are people doing in Aruba going to Subway? So, so there's 1,371 in Australia. And versus, That's a lot. Versus in Canada is 3,200. And the United States, mm. hang on, which is obviously going to be the most, is 25,000. Wow. And in the UK, 2,400. So, Australia, hmm. like, so I, I can't tell you the level of restraint I've had not getting this list and then getting population data and graphing it. <laughs> <laughs> 
how far... You know that that would be, satisfac- <laughs> that'd be I, satisfying, working out. I know that I would love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> anyone, if anyone has seen that or done that, at Two Shrinks Pod on, uh, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so, onto my, like, <laughs> onto, my, onto my more serious paper. Hang on. Mm. So, have you ever heard of white coat hypertension? Mm, it's ringing a bell. So white coat hypertension is when you have high blood pressure when you go and see doctor. a doctor at yeah. the doctor's, yeah. but you don't actually have outside the doctor's. Yeah. yeah. So frequently, what happens? So what they'll do is they'll take your blood pressure. They go, oh, it's a bit high, and then they go, all right, we'll, we'll chat to you for a bit, and then they'll do blood pressure again. Yeah. And that'll be low. Yeah. Right. It's it's a frequent or, thing. Yeah. Or you're a sixteen-year-old girl, and you have to have like a Full body check for a skin potential issue. Yep. And you arrive at the thing and the doctor is incredibly handsome. Yeah. <laughs> and he takes your blood pressure and then you have to strip off and be examined. <laughs> and you go back to your regular doctor and she says, all of my adolescent girls come back with incredibly high blood pressure. <laughs> 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 all that. <laughs> all that. Yeah. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> didn't happen to anyone I know. <laughs> I so I know someone recently who gone to the doctor had high high blood pressure and then they'd been asked to take a blood pressure monitor at home. Oh, one of those around the clock. Around the clock ones. Yeah. And I was like I was like, Oh, that sounds really, really serious. Ask ask my medical colleagues. Now the only reason to do that is to diagnose white coat hypertension. I'm like, is white coat hypertension really a thing? Like that mm. just sounds like bollocksy. Apparently it is. So, huh. th- so my papers are personality traits associated with white coat and masked hypertension. So it's by some Italian authors, Terraciano and colleagues from the island of Sardinia. Mm. Which sounds awesome. It does. <laughs> it does. So anxiety associated with blood pressure. There's been inconsistent personality research with it. And this is the other thing called masked hypertension, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the reverse, which is you turn up, you don't have high blood pressure when you measure it, but you've got high blood pressure at home, right? And so they did a study to look at this. 2,838 adults Mm -hmm. from Sardinia. They sampled from like four towns and yep. got in the original sample like 60% of the population. Like some <laughs> huge number. It was yep. great. So they got their personality data and then like about on an average of about seven years later, they took blood pressure and also did ambulatory blood pressure, which is the yep. blood pressure at home. And really, really quickly with the results, they found that only those who were taking antihypertensive medication, mm-hmm. was there an effect for personality stuff? So okay. if you were taking medication for blood pressure, yeah. then personality stuff became important. Huh. And what they found that high anxiety, so there was high anxiety, which was like a sub-component of the neuroticism scale. Yeah. So I imagine it's like an anxious personality mm. versus like a state yeah. anxiety. So if you had high anxiety, you had a high likelihood of pseudo-resistant hypertension. Mm-hmm. So due to the white coat effect, right? And then masked uncontrolled hypertension, or it's like sneaky hypertension. Yeah. <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> the so, I'm perfectly fine hypertension. Yeah. So yeah. that seemed to be related to conscientiousness. So if you're less conscientious, then you had a higher risk of being having the sneaky hypertension. Mm. And so the author and I was like, Oh, that's really, really interesting. 
the, the explanation they have are, well, if you're low or conscientious, you just don't take your medication properly. And so that's uh, probably why. I was like, oh, that's bugger. disappointing. <laughs> I, was like, I, could, I was like hoping for something really, really interesting, but I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. and so, I mean, conscientiousness is self discipline, order, diligence, industriousness. That was, so I thought that was interesting. It, yeah. Yes, it's real. And yes, if you're anxious, you get bright coat hypertension. And they were actually saying, well, you know, if you've got someone who's low conscientious or yeah. high anxiety, yeah. then you might need to do at home. BP monitoring to yeah. in order to correctly prescribe. So I thought mm. it was interesting and useful. I found a new favorite word. Yeah. So blood pressure was measured by a mercury cyphergomonometer. Cypher <laughs> <laughs> Read that. Cyphergomonometer. <laughs> yeah, I get what you. <laughs> Yeah, that that's impressive. <laughs> I, I I could I could have typed it into Google to pronounce it, but I thought, you know what? No, we'll give, give it a go. You. I want some mystery in life. Yeah, anyway, where, that's are you, fair. where are you taking us? Okay, uh, laughing. Yes. You know how that we all have different laughs at different times. Yes. Like my, I didn't expect to laugh. Always has a snort in it. Yep. Yep. Or my polite laugh is quite different like there's kind of we have social laughs oh, okay. yeah, and yeah, yeah. then genuine laughs yep. and spontaneous laughs yes what about chimps <laughs> okay that's not where i thought you were going no 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 i didn't expect to go here either <laughs> <laughs> well, we like 97 percent shit yeah 97% of our dna is same as chimp exactly anyway. yeah so i don't know how comfortable you are with our closeness with Primates? Not that comfortable. Get ready. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. So the article I found is called Aping Expressions. Chimpanzees produce distinct oh. laugh types when responding to laughter of others by Davila Ross and colleagues, 2011 in Emotions. Before I get started on this, would you like to hear a chimp laughing? Yes. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> So it's kind of more of a pant to me, but yeah. but you get the <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. So this article is about looking at whether chimps have the same kind of social variability in their laughing as humans do. So they talk about how humans can replicate others' emotional expressions even when they're not in the same state. So politely laughing when you don't find something funny. It's something that's reasonably unique to humans other animals don't are, tend are to do it that? I'm, i don't reckon i'm that good at that the larger the group the better i am at it yeah right so it's called non-duchenne laughter okay so it's detached from emotion so there's duchenne laughter which is like a genuine this is funny yeah or there's the other which it's kind of just like i'm laughing because you're laughing and because i should be laughing i i don't find this funny i'm not in the mood to laugh but this is what socially we do okay, in this so situation like together. Okay, so laughing? Yeah, or not feeling it. So being in like a social situation, someone tells a joke, everybody else is laughing, and you, you go, kind of <laughs> laugh along. Yeah. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, right. So you like know, what I do with you anymore. Exactly. <laughs> no. Yeah, all the time. That's why I brought this article. <laughs> 
So laughter, we use it as social function. You know, it builds connection. It helps with social communication. It sort of, you know, it serves a purpose as well as just being genuine enjoyment. Yeah. But people haven't thought that it was done in other species. They thought that it was only around playful things. Yeah. With great apes, they only laugh during social play and tickling. Yep. Rats also laugh with when they're tickled. I don't know what a rat laugh is. Yep. So it seems that it serves a function in primates as well. So laughter tends to extend the amount of play that people have, people, apes and (laughs) humans have with their children. (laughs) So when they're laughing with their children, the play lasts longer. Yeah. And that then serves developmental functions um, and interpersonal functions. So you build that bond, you keep on learning stuff because everyone's having a good time. Yeah. Yeah, humans tend to replicate other people's expressions from when they're infants and so do apes and monkeys. Yeah. And they do it really quickly. We all do it with the same amount of speed. We all do it within one second that we immediately, someone makes an emotional expression, we mirror it back. There's kind of like a, there's mirror neuron activation, bam, it's done. It's really quick. So they wanted to look at laugh replication, so laughing after other people laugh and spontaneous laughter by chimps to see whether the replication was caused by someone else laughing, so like the teacher laughing laughing with them or at something else that was funny elsewhere, yep. like they'd both seen something funny. And they determined which one it was by how quickly they laughed after the thing. So if it was under a second it's probably a genuine, that's funny kind of response. If it's longer, then you're kind of watching other people's responses and then going, I better laugh at this kind of a logic. So they studied 59 chimps living in a sanctuary in Zambia. Their enclosures ranged from five to 500 acres, which I thought was pretty massive. Yeah. Yeah. That's a new one for our... uh podcast list of odd things exactly yeah they looked at a total of 466 dyadic play bouts which were video recorded (laughs) and they coded for the occurrence of laughter they also did inter-rater reliability for all of these things it was very thorough yep and they looked at old colonies so colonies that had been together for years and new colonies and compared them they found 687 laugh series during 195 bouts of play from 42 chimps. Uh, most of the laughter was spontaneous. Detailed. Anyway, I know. <laughs> I've cut a lot out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also typed a lot and then cut it out because I just went, I'm getting too into this. Most of the laughter was spontaneous, followed by rapid and then delayed. They found that the laughing after someone else's laughed was shorter than spontaneous laughing, laughter, which would be the same as with humans I think and they found what I thought was really interesting and which made me kind of think about my own social circumstances (laughs) they found a difference between old and new colonies so there was far more laughing after other people laughed can you guess in which colony I want to say old but I don't know why new because they were socially trying to connect okay yeah, so the old ones, they were just kind of like, you're not funny. Yeah, right. <laughs> the new ones, they were kind of wanting to be build that connection, kind of laughing along. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. They found that play lasted longer if there was laughter, which makes sense. And also that the chimps didn't have the replication laughter from the start. They learnt it. So in their infancy, they just had spontaneous laughter. 
And then as they got to kind of like two, three years, they learned how to laugh after other people yeah. laughed. So they kind of built that thing. And the quickness of their laughter was exactly the same as humans. So how quickly they, whether they had that pause and they're kind of... The processing, uh, processing thing is the same. So essentially we're chimps. Good. I think was the motto that I got of that. And that it, my behavior makes perfect sense when I look at my social interactions, if I'm a chimp. <laughs> <laughs> I get why people are uncomfortable about research that compares us to animals. Yeah. But I also kind of Did you I just, kind of like that core thing of going like We we have this uh, that there is actually similarity in the behaviour and And, and that like, we have an innate need to play and to laugh. Yeah. And And then also there's a biological process that yeah. when I think about reaction times, like, yeah. like what's the the and speed also, limit of the body, that kind of thing. I also really like the idea of like a, you know, socially anxious chimp who's sitting on the side kind of going, oh, I better laugh. <laughs> I mean, that could just be me, you know. Question. <laughs> did, it, did it say what any of the chimps were actually laughing about? No. Chimp jokes. No, there were no chimp jokes. <laughs> we should write to the authors and see because <laughs> they've certainly filmed it and coded it. <laughs> yeah. So we should check. Or is yeah. it maybe this, the chimps are laughing at the researchers? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, look at this. Let's see how long we can wait and see if they scribble something down. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that. I don't know if you've ever seen that cartoon of the reverse of Pavlov's dog where he kind of goes, it's great. Every time I salivate, he gets really excited and writes something on his notepad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember reading a complete sidetrack. It was in a chapter of... Operant conditioning and classical mm. conditioning. So the classical conditioning is like the stimulus response thing. Yeah. But then like operant conditioning, if someone does something, then there's like a positive or negative reinforcement. Mm. And and the author finished off the description by saying that by the end of semester, they trained their lecturer to stand on the side of like one particular side of the classroom <laughs> yep. and fiddle with the blinds because whenever they were over like on the other side, the yep. class would act up. But then when <laughs> the lecturer was on like the right-hand side, yep. they'd all be quiet and, and attentive. <laughs> and so they would like reward. <laughs> it's cruel but brilliant. <laughs> the coordination to do that is... <laughs> uh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening. It was good to finish off Psychopathy. And yep. please tune into the pod with the interview with Liz because it's, uh, it's really, really interesting. It's fascinating. And we do include an assortment of things we came across at the end as well. We roped Liz into that. Oh, I she, think she loved it. R- roped. I think she, she, she led the charge. <laughs> she voluntarily flung herself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we will see you soon. See you soon. Bye.